little boy in a baseball hat stands in the field with his ball and bat says I am the greatest player of them all puts his bat on his shoulder and he tosses up his ball and the ball goes up and the ball comes down swings his bat all the way around Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Bob Schaefer. This is Touch Em All, episode 301 right now on the network. Uh, before we get to Bob, just want to thank our 50,000-plus subscribers. I appreciate your support because you now, we are the latest podcast stream on iHeartRadio. Uh, have a little delay in getting the sponsorship list up because we're working through some logistics on that, but uh, hopefully we'll have that up by mid to end of the week this week for our, our listeners so we can get rocking and rolling with uh, getting discounts for you guys and and uh, helping out our podcast hosts as well here. I've got a lot going on in Major League Baseball. Play it, playoffs has started up uh, this week. I think they start today, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, But some other issues going on with some of our major, major clubs, uh, some major franchises, Yankees, Mets, Giants, uh, of course. But uh, before we... Before we uh, get get going with all that stuff, Bob, welcome back. Seventy four countries tuned India today, listening to you talk uh, talk your knowledge about the game of baseball. Welcome back. Thank you. Looking forward to another one. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we we take a look at. Uh, gosh, I, I was joking with a friend of mine who was a Knicks fan. I said the Yankees are out, the Mets are out. <laughs> Looks like the Giants and the Jets are out. So we just disqualify the Knicks right now and say they're out of the playoff race. We can get, <laughs> yeah. Just get New York out of it together. But uh, the other night watching the, the Yankee game. <laughs> You know, the, the Rodon had another tough start, didn't make it out of the first. I don't even know if he registered an out. And I was getting hit around uh, fastball sliders. I don't think he threw his change up until pitch 71. And uh, pitching coach came out, and there was, there was some disrespect shown on the mound there between player and coach. And the coach was very diplomatic about it. Maybe that's part of the problem afterwards. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, could, could you recap that moment for me and uh, – if you, if you saw it, if you didn't, I can recap and just, you know, what would be the expectation of how that should be handled both uh, before, during, and after in a tough situation like that? Well, there's no reason for a disrespected coach or a fellow player or anything. I mean, when you show up a player, a fellow player or a coach or a manager, that that's like, you know, that's like death as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you got to have respect. I mean, Rodon, he's going through a lot this year. There's something behind the scenes, I think, but uh, he's frustrated, but you can't take it out on somebody who's trying to help you, but that's how it is now. And unfortunately, I think a lot of coaches are afraid to get the player mad at them because the player's agent go to the general manager, general manager say, you know, your coach is terrible, blah, 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 and you get fired. So it's just too bad that the coaches and the managers aren't in charge anymore. I mean, some are, but not many are because they're intimidated by uh, the players and what's going to happen if they, you know, get in their jump on their back or whatever, you know, just discipline them. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it either. I mean, I, I likened it to a parent situation. I always tell my kids, and even when, I, when I, I coached, my rule of thumb was, I'll never disrespect you in public. Don't disrespect me. Um, right. Because if you do, now you're forcing my hand. Now I've got to act on behalf of everybody else in the program or the, or the organization. And if I've got to choose between the whole thing and you, that choice has already been made, son. And, um, but, uh, Afterwards, I don't know if you did. You see the press conference when they discussed it with the manager or the the pitching I, coach? I didn't, but I heard he didn't apologize and everything else. But you know, there's a time and place. If you have a disagreement, there's time and place to handle it. Not in front of the public, not on the mound, not on the ball field. 
but you know, <clears throat> behind closed doors and you know, get your griefs out and go man to man and let's talk about it. Yeah. And nobody, nobody likes to get touched up like that. Of course we know that nobody likes to get taken out. You, you'd hope to think, um, but I can't imagine it was any surprise to him that they didn't let him get out of that inning. He just well, he was probably happy to get out there after that. You would hope. I thought he would give him a hug instead of turn his <laughs> back. What the hell took you so long? You're right. You're, you're four batters late. But uh, yeah, and afterwards, the, the coach, again, it's 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 all part of the world. We live on in this Teflon world now where after the game, the coach, I guess he handled it the right way, just said, hey, uh, you know, Carlos had a, had a tough outing and more or less cushioned it for him and, and made some excuses for him. And it's just happened sometimes. And at some point in time, I'd love to – have a coach sit up there and just say, you know what? That's unacceptable. We don't tolerate that behavior and uh, we'll handle that behind closed doors. Right. I uh, mean, just tell the truth and you know, if the player is wrong, he's wrong and let the yeah. player admit to it. And I mean, I had a run with a player one time in a dugout. he showed up the second baseman and uh, he was our close at the time. And what happened is uh, there's a double play ball that would have got out of the inning. Instead, the second baseman came off the base too soon. So he was called safe. The guy was out at first. So it was not an error. Well, the pitcher's walking around the mound, you know, kind of going crazy. And I could see him. He's showing the second baseman up. Well, sure enough, the next guy gets a base hit, so now it's an earned run. So now he's really upset. So he comes in the dugout, throws his glove at the end of the dugout. I'm waiting for the pitcher coach to say something. I'm waiting for a player to say something. I'm waiting for the manager to say something. So finally, I said something. I said, you know, I just jumped in his face, like, you know. I mean, he could have killed me because he's a lot bigger than I was, but – it wasn't right. And he showed the second baseman up and maybe because I was a second baseman shortstop, I had a little feeling for that. But anyway, uh, he's ranting and raving and everything. And we had a big shot and match. They finally, uh, you know, when the coach pulled him away and everything. And, you know, we ended the game ended and we went up in the dugout and went up to the clubhouse. And I thought for sure, you know, it would hit the fan. But fortunately, it wasn't on TV in Kansas City. But the next day, the general manager came down and said, which one on with you and so-and-so? I said, I told him the story. He said, we're good for you, but we got to talk about it because it's all over TV now. You know, they got that feed from Detroit. So I brought him in the, in the manager's office, and I said, look, if I didn't like you, I wouldn't have said anything to you. But you were completely wrong what you did, showing the guy up. He said, well, that's my earned run average. I'm going to arbitration. That's my earned run average. I said, let me tell you something right now. If you're pitching for stats alone, you're going to have a long time in this game. or not a short time. You're not going to have any fun doing it. I said, your job is to close it. Get in and out as quick as you can so you can pitch again tomorrow night. So a guy made a mistake, made it wasn't an error because of the way he scored. But, you know, you can't be thinking that way. You're going to have a terrible time. Well, so he'd come back to me. Yeah, well, that's how I am, blah, 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 and all this stuff. So I said, good, see you later. So two days later, he came to me and apologized. He says, you know what? You're 100% right. I'm 100% wrong. I appreciate you telling me. And uh, I said, look, I'm just trying to help you. I mean, you know, you're going to get yourself in deep trouble with your teammates and anybody else. But as I'm walking up the, the runway after the game, Three or four players said to me, and a couple of our leaders said, that was great. I said, why didn't you say something? But see, they don't want to say something to each other. They don't want to, they want to be buddy-buddy. But I jumped in there, and uh, they would have had to do. And like I said, two days later, he came to me, and he says, you know, you're right, I'm wrong, and I appreciate you trying to help me and all this stuff. And long story short, he went on to have a great career, about another six, seven, eight years as a setup guy. He played in the World Series, and, you know, we were friends ever, ever since. But – I had to say something. I couldn't let it go. Just that's because I am. And, uh, you know, sometimes players need a little attitude adjustment and that's what he needed. That's, that's why we're there as coaches too. That's uh same. Right. It's no different than parenting. And 
if you let that go, you know, that's going to manifest itself into something bigger later on, if not with you somewhere else down the road. So they might not like it right away, but again, you know, two days later he said, you know, you're right. So he learned something and hopefully I helped him learn something. Yeah. And for two days, he probably went to bed that night mad at you thinking you're the biggest SOB in the world. And I bet you, you slept fine those two nights. Cause, yeah. um, but I'll tell People you what, <laughs> yeah, I always t- I tell the kids the same thing. Like there's going to be days where you go home and you're not mad because I'm going to confront you on things and confrontation is not a bad thing. I mm. It's uh, it's been lost in our world and you may, you may hate me for a day, a week, a month, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to sleep just fine. But if you wake up 20 years from now and you got your son doing that, you got a player doing that to you and you look like, man, that guy knew how to correct that, meaning meaning you or me or whoever, and never did it for me, that guy's going to resent you for never doing that for him. And that's well, the other thing is the coaches. You try to make them better. I mean, you can't make them better, but you can help them make themselves better. And that's your job as a coach. So, I mean, anything you do, confrontational or not, within the best interest of the player, you have to do it. I agree. I think that's, uh, again, it's lost now. You mentioned the word buddy with the players. Um, you know, I see that people ask me all the time, have kids changed? And I don't believe they have. I think parenting's changed and it's gone yeah. into that buddy mode a little bit. And I fear for these kids that they're not being confronted. Confrontation's not a bad word. Being direct is not a bad thing. Um, there's a fine line between showing, showing people up and, and disciplining them. You discipline demand, but don't demean. That's always the the, the way to look at it. But no, I think your approach was great. It probably wasn't easy to do, but you had to do it. And uh, well, I waited for two other people to do it, a pitching coach and a manager, and they probably didn't think it was that serious, but I did. But like I said many times, you can be their friend, but not their buddy. There's a difference. Yeah, I agree. And then when they're when they're done playing and they, they move off into the regular life, you can be their buddy all you want um, and do it that way. Well, we, we saw a, uh, a manager that I know I know I like. Uh, I think he's old, old school in that way, Buck Showalter. <clears throat> get pushed aside and any thoughts on, on Buck's job he did with the Mets or um, where he may land or how that was handled? Well, it's too bad when one of the best managers in baseball, fundamentalist, been around a long time, good teacher, gets thrown aside because some other guy comes in that does not a baseball guy, David Stern. He's not a baseball guy. He, he ran a baseball team, but he's an analytical guy. That's what he knows. And he could bring his own guy. I mean, Council's going to be there, which is good for Council because, I mean, he's a good manager too. And you have to have somebody you feel comfortable with. And, and Buck, you didn't feel comfortable with Buck. So that that's part of the deal. But it's just too bad that a good baseball guy gets thrown under the bus. Just like when Bochy, the same situation happened to him. They kind of threw him out of there. He left because he saw a bad situation. Well, he was right. <clears throat> it's become real bad now. They finally get rid of Hocus Pocus guy that they hired as a manager. So now they got to start again. So, but Bochy ended up back in his feet and back for baseball and good for baseball because he's back and he's in the playoffs. So, you know, you need baseball guys running baseball teams and too many guys get these jobs because the manager or the general manager wants to intimidate them or wants to tell them what to do. The GM's never managed a day in his life, probably never been a dugout in his life. And he's going to tell the manager how to manage. And that's, that's not right. I mean, when I was in charge of players, I mean, coaches in minor leagues, I told them what to do. I didn't tell them how to do it. And that's a big thing. If you hire somebody to do a job, let them do it. And I tell him what you want him to do. You know, you want him to, you know, like coach, you want him to uh, teach him how to hit the ball the other way. Well, you got to figure out how to do it. Otherwise, I don't need you. The same thing a manager. Your job as a manager is, is to win game and create a good atmosphere in the, in the dugout and in the clubhouse. But nobody in the front office can tell a manager how to do it. But unfortunately, there's a lot of places to do it. <clears throat> and getting back to another thing I've all said, that you know, a lot of these managers are good baseball people, but they have to do it the way that – upper level wants them to do it. Otherwise they'll get fired. 
instead of yeah. just managing the game, managing the people the way they want to do it. Some are just insecure enough that they have to do or intimidated by the front office. And that's not how it should be. It's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough gig because they're, they're collectively deciding, okay, this is where we want to go. This is what we want to become. And then they put the manager behind the driver's wheel, um, but they don't give them the power to steer or to step on the gas or step on the brakes, but they hold them accountable for all that goes on in between. So I, uh, what, what made, and I remember when, you know, obviously Buck was with the Yanks, Texas, Baltimore, always big on player development. I know he came up through the minors uh, with the Yankee system. I think he was a Billy Martin guy, right? If I remember right. And um, what, what makes him so different, so special? Well, I think Buck, I mean, he had a lot more experience and success than I did, but we both played in the minor leagues. We both played in the Cape Cod League. We both, you know, learned how to play the game. None of us, either one of us was good enough playing the big leagues. He came close. I didn't come real close, but you learn about how to teach the game. And teaching and playing is a whole lot different uh, profession. I mean, a lot of guys are great players, but they can't teach it. And you need teachers in the big leagues. And one thing about Buck, he was one of the few managers that was a teacher. Jimmy Williams was a great teacher, great manager. Uh, Dusty Baker, good manager, good teacher. And that's where it starts. But Buck learned how to teach in the minor leagues. He had a good field to start with, but he managed in the minor leagues for a few years and learned how to do it. And unfortunately, some of these guys never learn, never go to minor leagues to learn how to do it. I mean, it's a tough job to take charge of 25 guys and maybe 28 guys out of 26. And you have to learn how to do it. There's kind of secrets or, you know, experience is the most important thing. And it's tough to jump right into a big league managing job with no minor league managing experience. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen a lot of managers fall and it's unfortunate because the ones that are, have gone through it the right way, like Buck Showalter, Terry Francona, Bruce Bochy, um, those guys will land somewhere where they're appreciated and do well. Obviously Bochy with, with Texas now. Uh, but you know, you get a guy like Gabe Kapler now, a guy fired out in San Francisco. I think he was fired with Philadelphia couple years back uh, did, didn't doesn't have that roadmap doesn't have that uh, and, and maybe if he had done it the way a Buck Showalter did and, and people not being in such a hurry to get to a certain spot maybe has the I guess the the background to, to get back on his feet again but uh, thoughts on that situation out there they 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 got rid of Gabe Kapler and they hired a guy and I I don't have his name in front of me and I apologize he was the infield coach and he was an internet guru an internet guy that's how they got he, he won't be there long Oh, I can't he imagine. Him, but uh, I hope Ron Wotus gets the job. Ron Wotus has all the credentials to be a major league manager. He's applied in the past. I talked to him the other day. He doesn't know if he wants to do it or not. I said, Ronnie, just do it. I mean, he'd be great for them. They love him in San Francisco. He's been a bench coach and third base coach for three or four managers and good managers, you know, Dusty Bakers and, you know, Bruce, Bruce Bochy, of course. And, and I mean, he'd be perfect. He's got the credentials. He's got the background. He's got the personality. He's got the whole package. So hopefully – the manager, the general manager, uh, Farhan, will realize that he's a baseball guy in a dugout. And Kaplan was not a baseball guy. I mean, he managed one year in the minor leagues and went back to play after that. He's got a gift of gab, and he got the job. Got the job in Philly. That didn't work out because he was a fraud. And now in, in the Giants, I mean, he had bad atmosphere. He had 16 coaches. I mean, you got to be kidding me. How can a guy have 16 coaches in the big leagues? <clears throat> so yeah. it, I, just, uh, it I wasn't good. Huh? I watched a lot of their stuff. Uh, I got stuff sent to me on their development, and I was amazed too. They they had two guys working with the catchers, and uh, both guys were teaching the things that we you, neither you nor I like uh, with the one knee, with the working ground yeah. up, the, all that crazy stuff, the yanking the ball back in. 
but yeah, I, I was amazed by that. Multiple infield coaches. I mean, just just way too much for, especially if you you don't have a lot of experience. You probably want to put guys with more experience around you. Less is more sometimes. Well, I hope I hope uh, I hope you're right with this selection. That'd be great to get a a guy who's paid his dues, who's who's been around, who's done it, climbed the ladder the right way, and and is probably going to be a steadying hand to need with San Francisco. Well, a lot of those guys get these jobs that they don't deserve. I mean, that's a problem. You get guys out there that deserve a big league job, but some of these guys get these jobs. They don't deserve them. They didn't earn them. And all they know is what the last guy told them. Yeah. They don't have their own thoughts because they have nothing to base their own thoughts on. They don't have any background. Which makes and The whole thing is, you know, when you get a professional baseball, you start at the bottom and work your way to the top one step at a time. You learn along the way. And you make mistakes. You learn from mistakes and so forth. But you get a good background. And another thing that probably this game now is that I learned from older coaches. I mean, I kept picking guys' brains all the time. That's how I learned. I mean, I didn't make up a lot of stuff. I just learned. But you learn from people who are smarter than you and been there before, and you got some uh, credentials. But unfortunately, a lot of these guys are getting fired and replaced, and they're bringing guys that maybe would coach a driveline. They coach the swing. They didn't coach the guy how to hit. They coach pitchers, and, you know, all they worry about spin rate instead of getting hitters out. But they don't have any expertise in – how to play the game itself. And that's what's happening with the game because the analytics, and I, I like analytics, and they're very, you know, have a value. But the way it's overtaking the game, it's just like a blanket over how the game's supposed to be played. Yeah, and maybe you answered the question I was going to ask you about why these, why would a guy who, for instance, who's been a bench coach for, you know, three to four different head coaches has the experiences, why would somebody not give him the look? Two, two jobs ago, one job ago, three jobs ago. What makes that guy so, um, I don't want to say unattractive, but in, maybe intimidating? Is that is that the better word for it? Well, I think some guys label get labeled. Uh, you know, there's a good number two guys. There's a lot of good bench coaches that probably couldn't be a manager. But, you know, th- they have credentials, but they just don't have that character or their leadership ability or whatever. But they're valuable bench coaches. And some yeah. guys are good like the number two guys. But – a guy that you know comes to mind is Demarlo Hill. Now Demarlo's Demarlo's one of my coaches in the minor leagues when I ran the minor leagues. He's been a bench coach, <clears throat> big leagues for uh, many years. Terry Francona and, and good managers, and he's on deck. Hopefully, he'll get a sh- good shot to get the job in uh, Cleveland because the players respect him. He's a baseball guy. He's had all kind of experience. And uh, you know, one time Terry Francona uh, was scouting. I went down and talked to Demarlo, and Terry came to me inside. He says, "Let me tell you what." This guy is one of the best. And Terry didn't know him at first. He knew him from the Red Sox a little bit, but then he hired him over there. He was with him with the Red Sox. He hired him over there at Cleveland. But but DeMarlo Hill is, uh, to me, he's just uh, got all the qualifications, all the experience to be a big league manager. And uh, he deserves a chance. But some guys never get that chance to prove what they can be. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, you know, that's where you got to be. You got to be, um, oh, it's the word. You got to appreciate a guy just keeping his keeping his game going because this is a, this is a game that's not forgiving and they they discard it discards people like that and some people never get back on their feet so I hope you're right with with a couple of these guys getting their opportunity especially since they've been in so long and probably have an awful lot to offer especially today when when there's a lot of inexperience out there um, leading this game without a doubt I just don't know how some of these owners who are very intelligent people and very rich people can hire someone. The most important job, I think, to keep the organization going, to hire somebody to, to be their manager that has no real qualifications. He's, a, you know, he has a gift of gab. He's a good interview and stuff like that. But you know, you want a guy that's in the gra- grassroots, guys in the dugout, making players better, 
and playing the game the right way. Well, they, they for some reason they devalue it. Would that, would that be safe to say they don't value the role of the manager as it used to be? Well, I think a lot of times they'll hire a guy that played in the big leagues because he's a pretty good big league player, and you know they get enamored by his credit or his resume, but it's not a coaching resume. So he's a good player, but it doesn't mean he's a good uh, manager. I mean, there's only been a few real good players like Joe Torre, Frank Robinson that became pretty good, uh, real good big league managers. And the best managers, the guys who are like the backup players or backup catcher or, or catcher, but like Bochy, he was a backup catcher. He's a great manager. I mean, Jim Leland is a perfect example. He managed forever in the minor leagues. And one, to me, he's one of the best managers ever in the big leagues because he was just knew how to handle players, knew how to run a game. And he's in charge. He walked out to the mound. He was in charge. And that's what you need. Somebody's in charge, has a uh, confidence to know he knows what's right. And the players, they gravitate to a guy like that. What makes the backup a better shot to be a, a manager or, uh, or, or even a coach uh, than as opposed to the star player? Well, I can relate to that a little bit. I mean, I was a minor league player, but I knew I wasn't that good. I knew I was limited, but I learned from everybody. You know, I watched the game. I studied the game. The backup catcher, same way. He studies the game. Even though he's not playing, he's playing the game in his own mind by watching and learning. And uh, he's more equipped than a guy who just goes out there with exceptional talent because just the talent just flows and he just does it, and it makes it easy for him to do it. He doesn't know really what he's doing. He just can do it. So the backup guys or extra guys, they learn the game, and every day they're learning, and I'm sure they're talking to the manager, the coaches, and learning. I mean, Brad Osmus, you know, he was a little more than a backup catcher, but when he was with us in L.A., he used to talk to me all the time, ask me about this, about that, and everything. And, and to me, Brad Osmus should have been a very good big league manager, but one day I was sitting next to him in Arizona Fall League. He came down and sat down, and he said, uh, how are you doing? I said, I'm good. I said, what are you going to do next year? He says, I don't know. I want to be a manager. I said, Brad, why don't you go back to AA one year and just learn what it's all about? Get some experience in AA. It's the best level for you know to learn how to manage. And the, the you know talent is good there. The players just need a final tune-up. But AA to me was the best. AAA is tough because the guys at AAA are one step from the big league. Some been up, some been down. And some have a little attitude about not being up again. But AA was great. Just go to AA and be a manager. He said, I don't know if I have to do that. Well, sure enough, a week later, I read he was the manager of the Detroit Tigers with no manager experience. I mean, he had, in his mind, he did because he sat in the dugout and picked everybody's brain. And Brad was one of the smartest guys I've ever been around. Great personality, great, you know, experience as a catcher. He was a good catcher. He should have been a good manager. But, you know, you need that little experience in a non-pressure situation. And I watched him manage in the big leagues, and he was kind of a disaster. And he didn't didn't have enough confidence to take charge and do what he thought was right. He was trying to do what he thought somebody else thought he should do. That was my take on him. And he got another job. But, you know, he should be a real good major league manager with his experience, his intelligence, and his personality. Yeah, and sometimes it's, there's such an inertia for immediate uh, success nowadays, whether it's as a player or coaches. They want what they want, and they want it now. We used to call that being an immature athlete. That's the polite way of saying it back then and, and coaches can be the same way. You just have to have, you know, people ask me, what does it take to be really good at being a coach, a player, anything in life? You have to have the necessary experiences, plain and simple. Right. What those are, it's, it's different for everybody with it. So I think that's good advice. Well, this is, this has been the show about advice today. We should have said, ask Bob and five cents, a five cents an answer and 25 cents if it requires thought, just like Charlie <laughs> Brown used to do. Yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, there's a couple unfortunate passings in baseball. Um, I know you've touched a lot of people in your career, just kind of taking a shot here. Uh, Tim Wakefield, any any experience with Tim? 
Yeah, he, he was he was just an outstanding person and became a hell of a pitcher. We got him from the well, – he got released by the Pirates. I was running the minor leagues then, and Duquette said he's going to sign him. I said, yeah, good, it's worth the chance. So we are in Fort Myers at the old ballpark, of course, and uh, the Silver Bullets were in town. They, they trained there also. There's a women's baseball team. Oh, yeah, remember and that. The Negro brothers were the coach and manager. So we figured it'd be good. Bring him down here and let those two guys work with him. And they were very uh, – very helpful. They're very willing to work with Wakefield, and and they worked with him, you know, many hours, many days, not many days, because he picked it up right away. But Sammy Ellis, who was a pitching coordinator, a good friend of mine, I hired Sammy when I was there, and Sammy worked with him on his mechanics. And Wakefield told me later on, he said, you know, Sammy probably helped me more than the other two guys, even though they did help him too. But Sammy helped him with his mechanics because it's all about repeating his delivery, get to get that you know release point to Sam. So anyway, long story short, yeah, Wakefield, you know, went from the instruction league or actually uh, extended spring training and uh, progressed up. And he was a great pitcher with 17 years with the Red Sox. But he was a great addition to that staff because he could start, he could relieve, come back two days later after starting. And I mean, he just was you know, all American. I mean, all, all utility type pitcher that was very successful and pitched a lot of innings. He won a lot of games and just a super person besides. So that was that was devastating when I heard that he I heard he had cancer and then you know it seemed like a few days later he passed away. Yeah, yeah it was only less than forty eight <laughs> hours from the announcement to right to to the uh the second announcement. Now why why is a knuckleball so hard to throw? You don't see people doing that anymore. Well, I coached with uh Hoyt Wilhelm when I was with the Yankees. I was running a minor league. I mean, we're in the instruction league and Hoyt was one of our coaches and Hoyt was I mean he was funny as hell. But he could throw a knuckleball. He said, I said, why can't you teach guys? He said, I don't know. It's not, you can't, you can do it or you can't do it. He said, he learned it when he was like 12 years old. And uh, he told me stories about hitting guys with a knuckleball, you know, hitting catchers. And uh, he said, you know, nobody could catch him. And uh, he had, a, you know, he knew how the thing would go. It almost go like a, a circle coming at the hitter. But he could control it. And he had a great feel for it. And he pitched, he's like almost 50 years old, maybe, you know, close to that, if not more than that. But he just had a touch. It was a touch. He said, I can't teach it. You got to have it. I mean, he tried to teach a lot of guys, and uh, not many guys could learn it. And we had a kid in the minor leagues, uh, Jared Fernandez, who was maybe double-A tops with his stuff. But one of his buddies told me he had a knuckleball. So I said, Jared, let me see the knuckleball. So he threw it, and I said, that's pretty good. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a two-year contract. You're a knuckleball pitcher now. Just throw knuckleballs. Well, sure enough, he picked it up. He ended up getting the big leagues for a short period of time. But – he was a great kid, and he, he did it, and uh, it paid off for him. So once I knew he could throw it over the plate and just pull him to double-A, and then from double-A, he finally got to the big leagues. With, you know, he was with a couple teams after the Red Sox, but he, he just he had that touch. Um, a few other guys have tried it. You know, a little bit. Some are half-knuckleballers, and some are, you know, half-whatever. And I guess a guy named Waldron, who's a knuckleball pitcher now, are the only one left. But I don't know. More guys should try it, but it's not something that can pick that, be picked up that easily. It's just it's a touch. And uh, like uh, Hoyt said, I can't teach it. He just did it. But, you know, Hoyt would be out there be shagging, you know, from batting practice, and he'd pick up a ball and say, Shave, he'd throw, he'd throw it at me. I just jumped out of the way because I tried to catch it by hitting that, you know, wherever. Yeah. Because I couldn't catch it. It was just unbelievable how the ball danced. Yeah. I, uh, I actually picked, picked one up when I was younger because I pitched up until I decided in high school I wasn't going to pitch anymore because it just wasn't good for my, my arm to do. But, um the knuckleball. And I, I often think that maybe second baseman would be great people converted because, you know, a second baseman, we kind of, I don't say we, we short arm the ball, but it's got that, that little, that little action. And 
whenever I wanted to bust the, the my Italian word, bust the Cayones of my first baseman's when I was playing either in college or in the minors, I would throw a knuckleball at them during during uh, you know the pre pre inning infield stuff. If I didn't feel like they were stretching too much, just to kind of wake them up, toss a little knuckleball at them. Well, a lot of guys, I mean, I could throw a knuckleball. I had two or three fingers, but I, you know, I remember I was hurt. I get hit in the hand, so I couldn't uh, play, couldn't swing. So I'd be down in the bullpen throwing knuckleballs, and y'all say, you ought to go in the game. I said, no, if I go in the game, it might not be where I want to throw it. I might get hit in the forehead with a line yeah. right back at me. But uh, but they say Mickey Mantle had a hell of a knuckleball. You know, a few players can throw it, but it's just a matter of being consistent with it where you throw it over the plate enough times to be successful. Yeah. And I did, that's what I threw to the three finger. And then I tried throwing a two finger and it actually worked almost like what a, a breaking pitch would look like. It had a little bit more spin to it, a little bit of tumble. Yeah. Almost too, but it's a fun pitch to do. Um, what Now, obviously the Hall of Famer Brooks Robinson passed. Uh, his his uh, services are uh, early this week. Our, our very own Jim Cott is speaking, one of the one of the uh, speakers at, at the service. Uh, any, any experiences with Brooks? Well, when I scouted with the Orioles, I got to meet him. I didn't really know him, but I talked to him a few times. But uh, I saw him play when, I was, you know, when he was in his prime. But no doubt he's the best third baseman ever. I mean, he made plays consistently. That There's some guys now a good third baseman, but to make a play consistently like he did, especially coming in on a slow roller, he was tremendous. He was a better hitter than people gave him credit for. He just was overshadowed by a few other, like Frank Robinson and some of those other guys. But uh, – <clears throat> He was such a good fielder, they kind of forgot about how good a hitter he was. But he was a great gentleman. He was in charge of uh, Major League Baseball alumni and everything. And uh, just a superhuman being. And uh, it, it's too bad that, you know, we've lost a lot of good guys recently, good baseball people. Yeah. I, I was, I'm amazed. And, again, I, I'm not I'm not old enough to have watched him, but uh, so, saw, you know, videos. I saw kind of the tail end. I was probably just a really young kid as he was finishing up. But – I'm amazed at the different arm angles he could throw across a diamond with that kind of accuracy. And you're, you're right. He was not, he was not a big guy by major league baseball standards nowadays. Uh, but I think his hitting was overshadowed a lot, probably by the people in the lineup also, but also his fielding was so, so good with 16 gold gloves, but the, the arm angles, with which he could throw across a diamond just amazed me. I don't see the players today with their lack of mobility being able to do that. Well, I said when we were talking about infield play, he's one of the few guys who would start with his feet real close together. And when he came in on a slow roll, he'd throw the ball overhand to first base, where most guys have to throw a sidearm or underhand. I mean, I'd throw it kind of sidearm. But he could throw it overhand. I don't know how he did it, but he did it, and he was very successful and consistent with it and accurate with it. And uh, he was just a tremendous third baseman, tremendous athlete. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's fun to watch in those videos. It was a step and a dive and um... – amazing the ground he covered with that yeah, one, one theory about him is that you see him sign autographs he signs a left-handed yeah and he was left-handed with everything except for throwing a ball and hitting a ball yep and uh, the theory was that he's that's why he's such a good fielder because his left hand was kind of his dominant hand or you know the one he could use better and uh so it was like that, his glove was that much quicker and that was a theory people had so i don't know probably accurate i don't know it could be that's uh <clears throat> So I, uh, I, I shared this story last week. Jim Cott had asked me to share it on his show. Um, I've got a, I've got a Brooks Robinson autograph ball, and uh, I, w- I won't go into detail about the story again. But I traded two Dave D'Agostino autograph baseballs when I was in the minors for one Brooks Robinson, unbeknownst to me. My aunt said that she was meeting meeting this gentleman as part of the bank. He was a consultant with the bank in Baltimore, and he played a little. And they, they wanted a couple autographed baseballs from me for their offices. So he said he would trade one to me for, for if I gave him one. So I sent him two. And uh, so I got one. I have a Brooks Robinson autograph ball, very neatly signed, very much left-handed, you could tell, in the signature. But uh, 
I shared with Jim, he asked me about my dexterity. I said, well, I shoot basketball left-handed. I throw yeah. baseball right-handed. I'm yeah. a switch batter, but I, I, I like hitting lefty better. Um, that's probably just because I'm not a natural lefty. But uh, And he goes, what hand do you brush your teeth with? And I had to think about it. I said, I think either. Depends. Really? But I write right-handed. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so so people are weird that way. But uh, yeah, people a lot, a lot of good Brooks Robinson stories last week. I didn't get a chance to ask you about your experiences with him, but uh, yeah. I, know you no, I just watched him and I didn't, I didn't really know him personally, but I, I watched him quite a bit and uh, he was fun to watch. No doubt about it. Yeah. Well, with, with the, uh, the logistics around baseball this year, we had, we had a lot of different um, topics thrown at you and I'm going to let you kind of pick which direction you want to go. People were interested in hearing on your kind of your synopsis on the year end, the, whether you want to hop into the rule changes, um, if you want to look at the playoff structure, um, how the different, training methods worked you know we major league baseball spent almost a billion dollars on injured players this year um you know minor league baseball system being reduced how did that affect it um which direction you want to go well first of all the state of the game for me i mean like i said analytics have a value to the game but some of these people who run teams now all they know about is analytics and analytics are one-dimensional they uh it's the raw raw you know that that is so to speak i mean talk about bunning the other day I'm watching our team, last game of the season, we got guys in first and second, nobody out, and the guy leads on a perfect bunt, so now we got second and third. Long story short, they scored two runs. Next inning, same situation. Davey put the bunt on again, good bunt, second, third, two more runs, we scored, we won by one run. Now, during the season, you don't see that, but the last game of the season, they broke out the bunt. The sacrifice bunt is a very important part of the game, but the analytics say it's just a waste of an out. Well... Maybe early in the game is a waste of an out, but late in the game, when you got the winning run or tying run on first base or first and second, you sacrifice an out for you know advancing base runners. They don't realize the analytics don't realize that when you got a guy in second base who's the winning run or the tying run, it puts pressure on the pitcher. It puts pressure on the infielders to make a play. One base hit, you win the game or maybe tie the game. So I mean, a sacrifice bunt has a, a value in the game. I mean, you know, Manfred come up with all these rules. Thought the young people would like all these statistics and uh, exit velocity, launch angle, spin rate, and all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't know how many new new fans he has in the young part because I want to look at those stats. But all I know, a lot of older people, like myself, even like you, have left the game because all you hear on the TV and radio, well, his exit velocity was this, was that. Who cares? Did, did he get a base hit or not? I mean, we used to sit in the stands, <clears throat> my buddy and I, or you know, three or four of us, late in the game, seventh inning on, Man at first, you say, you think he's going to bun here? Some guys say, yeah, I think he is. Another guy said, maybe not. I think he's going to hit and run. But, you know, a fan is a manager in his own way. He's managing the game along with the managers. But they've taken a strategy out of the game. So now you ask the guy, is going to bunt? And the answer is no, because they don't bunt anymore. Yeah. Now, that's why I like playoff baseball, because playoff baseball, they're going to play the game to win each game individually. They're not going to play for their stats. They're not going to play for their exit velocity. They're going to do what they have to do to win a game. You're probably going to see more bunts, sacrifice bunts in the, in, the, uh, in these games. You're going to see any any games during the season. I mean, there's some teams that haven't don't have any sacrifice bunts at all by position players. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, it's a big part of the game. I mean, I'm not saying early in the game because you go for beginnings. But later in the game, when one run will make a difference, that's when you got to do it. Like when I managed in the minor leagues, I wasn't big on bunting early. We would bunt for base hits. We used to practice it all the time, bunt for a hit. So now, if it's like first and second, nobody out, maybe fifth inning, fourth inning, I'd have the guy bunt for a hit. Right-hander hitter drags it down the third baseline. That's a tough play for the third baseman because he doesn't see he's going to bunt until you bunt. 
So now he's, he's going to charge hard. He's going to make a decision what he's going to do with it. Usually you got to go to first. But if nothing else, you end up with a second, third. A lot of times you end up with the bases loaded. So bunting for a hit was a big part of our game, but we practice it. I see guys now that aren't great hitters. They should bunt for a hit a lot of times. Just advanced base runners or get themselves on. And it's just a, it's a skill that's not practiced. It's a strategy that's not practiced. And that's, like I said, they've taken a lot of strategy out of the game because of the rules that are the theory that, you know, a bunt is just an out, just like strikeouts. You know, they made us the big thing. Well, strikeouts, just an out. Well, a strikeout never scored a guy from third, never took a bad hop. And, you know, teams that win put the ball in play consistently. And these guys who strike out in the middle of a, a rally, they just kill the rally and just kill the game itself. Because they're swinging for exit velocity, they're swinging for a two-run home run with a man on second, nobody out, instead of just playing – you know, base to base, so to speak. So, you know, the game is, is about strategy. It's about what do you got to do to win the game? And I think what happens is that too many times the pit hit hitters know they're going to get paid by exit velocity. I mean, Joey Gallo is a perfect example. He got $6 million hit in 190. He had some home runs. But how many of those home runs really counted? Uh, he had a lot of home runs that counted, but he had a lot that didn't count. But a lot of times he left the guy in third base with two or less than two outs because he couldn't put the ball in play. Yeah, I'm not trying to pick on him, but I mean, there's a bunch of guys in that same category. I mean, just put the ball in play, hit the ball, and go from there. Like we all said, if you play the game the right way, the stats will take care of themselves. Yeah, just like the message you gave that reliever uh, back in the beginning of the show here. When you confront them, don't play for stats. Why Why invest then 162 games into playing one way, and then when the playoffs happen, shift to the way we think baseball should be played? Well, I think it's because of statistics. Those players, they want to create as many statistics they can. So like early in the season, they want to you know see what they get from the RBIs you get, which are important. But trying try to get an RBI, sometimes you get nothing because you try to hit a home run or try to you strike out you know, two strikes and don't put the ball in play. But now you play game by game. Every game means something. And even though it does during the season, their stats are still more important to the general manager and the people evaluating these players and actually winning a game sometimes. I mean, to me, when I evaluated, you know, when I scouted, I look at a player and say, what can you do to help you win? Some guys might hit 250 that can help you win. Where a guy hits 290, can't help you win because he doesn't get hits the right time. He strikes out the wrong time. And he does stuff that just doesn't help a team win consistently. So, you know, what can you do to help a team win is most important. Does he get signs? Can he make the plays defensively? Can he run the bases? I mean, stuff like that all after winning a game. What do, you, what do you think of the playoff structure? The way they have it now, it's, I mean, basically 40% of the league gets in the playoffs. But, uh, you know, as uh, going up to the last day, I mean, you're looking at the other side. I, I liked it better when le- I thought less was more. But I see, you know, like a team like Texas was battling for a wild card three days ago. And now all of a sudden they're the division winner. Uh, or, or Houston, I should say. Houston. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's good because it keeps the interest in its season longer. And, you know, more teams get in. But I think the teams that, that the buy – you're getting a disadvantage. They don't play till Saturday and they played Sunday. So it's like what six days. I think if they're gonna do it, and I think the two out of three is better than you know, single game elimination. But to me, what they should do is play a doubleheader one day and a single game the next day. So they're only two days you're playing instead of three days. Now that that might penalize those teams that just barely got in. It will help the teams that you know had the best records. So that would eliminate one day anyway, and that would make it a little bit easier to get back in in the swing of things. But I think those five, six days off are going to hurt these teams. I mean, maybe not the pitchers so much, but the hitters, 
Yeah, I know they're going to play inter-squad games and stuff like that, but it's not quite the same. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's in an A that I guess the negative on the teams that are playing is they can't reset their rotation, but uh, you know they, they they're going to have to throw number one early on. What would you what would your preferred playoff structure be? I know back well, way 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 back when when it was what the, the winner of the American League played the winner of the National League, what, the nine game or eleven game. Yeah, well, it was like four to seven, I think. But, yeah. uh, I mean, like I said, I think uh, with thirty teams having uh, six in each division make it. I think it keeps the season more interesting for a longer period of time. Uh, but like I said, I just don't like the way, you know, top two teams you know, draw by the other four teams play each other off. But like I said, it's just, I know you got travel in there and everything. At least they're all playing the same ballpark. So they don't have to travel in between, but I think it's a disadvantage to wait six days before you play again. And that's why I said I have a doubleheader one day. So you, you finish in two days. Instead of, I mean, who knows if they have rain delays or rain, rain outs? I mean, now it's going to be more than six days they have off. Oh, yeah. They, baseball yeah. is meant to be played every day. Yep. That's, that's, I, I agree. That's that's more for the TV, probably, the, the behind the scenes money marketing, not playing yeah. a double dip like that. I just I thought of a question that just escaped my mind here. Um, it had to do with the playoffs. But um, mm. so with, with, oh, yeah. It was, so, the, so now you mentioned 30 teams. They're supposed to be expanding the league. Uh, you know, Nashville is the latest team they talked about. Ironically, the general manager of the Phillies, Dave Dombrowski, had been a consultant for them early on. If not a lot of people know that the Dave Stewart's involved with that franchise uh, out in Nashville potential. With the reduction of the minor leagues, the reduction of the draft, and Major League being kind of a watered-down product, is it a good idea to add another team? Well, it's all about money. You know that. Yeah. I mean, no, I don't think it's a good idea, but it, it's a better idea to add more minor league teams where the kids get a longer term, uh, chance to play and learn how to play the game before they get to the big leagues. Right now, the worst thing that Manfred did and talked the owners into doing it was eliminate, you know, the you know, half year, you know, uh, New York Penn Leagues and those leagues. Yeah. I mean, it just took 25 jobs, maybe 30 jobs away. It took a guy another, you know, less time to get to double A because no work for him to play. And, uh, that, that was ridiculous. You know, he talked the owners into saying, you're going to save money. Well, you know what? In the long run, you're going to lose money because, you know, when the demand is uh, greater than the supply, you're going to lose money. So you bring guys to the big leagues before they're ready. You bring guys double before they're ready, and they don't learn. But, you know, the theory that these non-baseball guys come up with that, when you look at a minor league team, so we only has two or three prospects, so why do we need that team? Well, what they don't understand is that even though you have two or three guys who are going to get to the big leagues, and usually the higher up he goes be more than that, the guys who play there, you know, good AAA players, they're very valuable to an organization because they, they're major league insurance. <clears throat> but what they know is they know how to play the game. So they make the prospects better. So yeah. the prospects will learn how to hit a breaking ball when they're behind the count or when they're ahead and, and so forth. And, and they know how to play. So they make the young prospects better because they're playing against better competition. But if you eliminate those teams – you eliminate some guys who are non-prospects, so to speak. And a lot of non-prospects do make it to big leagues, but there are some non-prospects that aren't going to make it to big leagues. But they're all part of the situation in the, in the uh, you know, way, way it's put together. They're all part of the equation of making big league players, big league players, but make them big league players when they get to the big leagues. You're not, and, you know, teach them how to get be big league players before they get to the big leagues. But if you had a bunch of guys that know what they're doing out there, the good guys will never get better because – the other guys beat throwing the fastballs down the middle, 2-0 instead of breaking balls or all-speed stuff. So they never learn how to become a big league player when they're in the minor leagues 
because the, the competition is not that good. So that theory about there's only so many prospects in each team, that might be right. But see, again, it gets back to analytics. The analytics don't tell the real story. They tell you, you know, the raw stats, but they don't tell you the real story. And the real story is it takes a whole lot into it to make it uh, uh, usable. Just like the bunt. All right, not good to give it out early in the game, especially. But you know what? It helps you win games if you execute it properly. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as we talk on the show, analytics are supposed to start the story or enhance the story. The story can't be told without experienced baseball people that have been there, uh, done it, um, have been in and around it. Because as, as you said, and, and I, I liken it to if people want to watch the movie Bull Durham, although it's kind of a parody of uh, minor league baseball, there's the opponents that you're playing against, which are seasoned guys, maybe not major league guys, but they're still really good players. And um, it helps these young uh, prospects learn that talent alone is not going to get me where I want to go. But you also have those guys on your team that have been there and done that, and they 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 can show you the way, so to speak. And all that stuff's invaluable, and, and it's it's ironic. The whole idea is to get that prospect to the big leagues um, with the best a chance to have success at the, the the parent club. But by reducing the system and eliminating those guys that you mentioned that are so valuable, you actually lessen the chance of that prospect having success. And it's worth right. the money. It's worth yeah, the effort. And, and those, those experienced minor league players, they're mentors to young kids coming up. I mean, just like there's a lot of players in the big leagues that are veteran players that are mentors to the guys because they've had experience. They can sit next to a guy in, in the dugout. When the guy's struggling, he's like, oh, for 15. And the older guy who's had a lot of experience, a lot of success, can say, hey, I've been there. Relax. You know, just do this. Do what you got to do. But don't fight yourself. It's just like the problem with the game now. I mean, there's a lot of unemployed ex-coaches who have a lot of expertise, but they don't have jobs because they hire these guys inexperienced. I mean, look at, you know, look at the Giants. They had 15 coaches. How many of those coaches had any kind of real experience that could really help a major league player? I don't know personally, but I guarantee you not too many. Yeah. But same thing in the minor leagues. They got guys coaching the minor leagues. They might have been, you know, like half-assed player or uh, not didn't play at all in the minor leagues. And they're going to teach guys how to be players. I mean, you know, and the big thing about veteran coaches who are out of the game now, they're they're like uh, mentors. That's how they learn. They teach the coaches how to coach, and that, that's how I learn. I learn from veteran guys, mm-hmm. and it's too many of those guys don't have jobs. I mean, there's a bunch of them. They get laid off every year, and even uh, even scouts, veteran scouts. <laughs> but you have to teach the younger guys and go from there. But they all think they know everything. The guys who run the teams that aren't baseball guys think, oh, anybody can scout, just go get a radar gun and a stopwatch. Well, that's not true. They don't know what a scout does because they never did it. Yeah. Well, I think eliminating those minor league teams too, you're talking about eliminating guys that may not be major leaguers. My biggest fear other than the prospects development is now you're eliminating uh, coaches because as you mentioned earlier, guys like Bruce Bochy, Jim Leland, yourself uh, were, were good minor league players, didn't make it to the to the bigs. Buck Showalter, those are the guys that are stepping in and, and helping grow the game from a managerial uh, assistant coach, hitting coach, pitching coach standpoint, eliminating them, I think is just going to crush the game more than, than, uh, than it will be with bringing back the prospects. Talent will eventually emerge, but, uh, I fear that, that we're not going to have any good coaches or as many good coaches anymore. Well, every organization has a good feeder system, whether it's coaches that, you know, help other coaches or players that, you know, work their way to the big leagues. But you know, you have to have, you have to have a good feeder system in a coaching point as well as you do on the players, players side. But unfortunately, a lot of these coaches are ex coaches get fired because they, you know, they don't know about the analytics. They know analytics runs the games 
and they're not 100% in the analytics. And once they say that, they're gone. Instead of having analytics, I always said before, I want to teach a, a player or a coach, a baseball guy, the analytics, rather than an analytic guy trying to teach him baseball. And again, there's a lot of value in analytics if it's used properly. But uh, when they start overcoming the baseball people and eliminating baseball people because the analytics and it's crunching these numbers and half of them don't mean anything, Another thing, all those analytics have the same information. You think about it, they all have the same information. So what, what advantage do they have over, over another organization? But good baseball guys that can teach, they have an advantage. I mean, look at the Braves. The Braves don't win by accident. Look at in the club in the dugout. They got all white hair guys, older guys, guys have been around. And you know, the players respect them because they know they know what they're talking about. And like I said, you can't make a, a player better, but you can help a player make himself better. And that's where the teaching, the psychology of the game come in comes into effect. And that's what it's all about. And you need that expertise from experience. Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, we, we covered a lot this morning, kept almost an hour here. What, what do you want to leave the audience with uh, this week? I'll tell you what would be fun. We should, we should get, uh, I'd love to have you with a guest on and uh, just hear the, the back and forth so our audience can appreciate uh, baseball guys, how they, how they talk. Not that, not that I can't provide that for you, but to, to get, uh, to get someone with your experience uh, next to you, on the show. Maybe we can, we can work on that for next week. I think that'd be a great audience treat. Yeah. Well, I got a perfect guy. We can get on there. I coach him in two different places. He's one of the best hitting coaches, but he was too tough on the players, supposedly, but Jeff Penlin, <laughs> he coached Barry Bonds. He coached, yeah, he's a good guy with, you know, he, he can teach power. He's one of the best. He's coached for several big league teams and yeah, you know, it's a no name guy. Didn't play, you know, played in college, played a little bit in minor leagues, but he's perfect. And I can get a hold of him. The only problem is out in you know, Arizona, so the time change might be different, but maybe we can work on it afternoon time next week and I'll get a hold of them. We'll figure that out. Yeah, definitely, because I think that's a whole different um, – I, I, I like doing the 360 because you have so much to offer the, the audience out there that I think uh, what, what you and I do is wonderful, and I think we add someone like that. It'll just enhance the, the knowledge that you can provide to the people out there. But no, I appreciate you so much, Bob. Anything you want to leave the audience with uh, this week? No, I think that, uh, you know, watch these playoff games and see the different strategy these teams use. I mean, some will change a little bit and some might not, but you're going to see they're going to value each run more important early in the game than they did during the season, I think. Yeah, I think you will too. And we'll talk about that stuff next week. We'll work on uh, a guest for you uh, for for next week as well. And thanks so much for what you do with with, – Touch them all here. Episode 301 on the network, Real Voices of the Game. Thank you to our audience, 50,000 plus. Be patient. I'm meeting with our group. We had a little logistical uh, issue with putting the sponsors up there for our audience, but we'll see if we can take care of that by my midweek. I've got it on my schedule today and tomorrow. Take care of you guys like you took care of us to get us on iHeartRadio. We appreciate that so much. Tune in next week with to, to listen to Touch Them All with Bob Schaefer, maybe a special guest. Uh, if not, we'll certainly have tons of topics because the playoffs will be recorded by then. But uh, on that, Bob, thanks so much. Uh, you gave 74 countries a treat today. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you. It was a good show. Yes, I'm deterred. <clears throat> Says I am the greatest there has ever been. He grits his teeth and he tries it again. And the ball goes up and the ball comes down. Swings his bat all the way around. The world's so still you can hear.